Amen. Remain standing for the prolonged period of the reading of the text this morning. We will be away from you for five weeks, the longest period I've ever been away from my ministry. And I'm not sure how much sound preaching I'm going to hear while I'm on the road or in what language I'm going to hear it. So I am going to be preaching as much to myself as to you today, and I'm going to be enjoying and relishing the word as we now celebrate the new Passover, which is the title of the message. Turning back to the old one from Exodus chapter 4, we're going to begin reading at verse 19, then we're going to skip over and continue the story from chapter 11, right on into chapter 12. So now hear the blessed word of God. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Sipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now skipping down to Exodus 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh in Egypt. After he will, afterward, he will let you go from here. But when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask of his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man of Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then shall there be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between Egypt and Israel." And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months, 
It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the children of Israel, saying, On the tenth month of this on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the land, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its leg and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until the morning, for whatever remains until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and the staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you for a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats unleavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only must be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this same day I have brought out the armies, I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, 
that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Our Father, open our eyes with the Spirit today and make us to see the glory of Christ and to be changed from glory unto glory into his likeness and strengthen our faith in all that is before our eyes in this text and give us understanding spiritually and help us to walk in it faithfully. So we pray the Spirit of God would draw us into the story in such a a living and vibrant way that we would accept the drama and love the life and to hope for the glory and that we would live faithfully in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have chosen a rather long passage of Scripture this morning because we need to understand the story. We live in a world of symbol and story. If you're like me, you can be so analytical that you study the bark of the trees and can begin to parse what kind of tree it is, and yet we forget about really the forest and the broader context in which that tree is a part of, and we begin to work our way through books of the Bible like we're doing in Matthew, and we're verse by verse and passage by passage, and yet we often fail to see the story. And that's what it's all about. That's where these people live. That's what Moses lived. That's where Abraham lived. That's where we continue to live. It's in the story. Because that's how God works among his people. He works in his people with story and symbol. And we are still living in part of the great drama of redemption. It is important to bring our children up in a way that God has directed us to bring them up, and that is in story with symbol. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. Before us is the first account of the Exodus, which is a work of God through the Passover and delivering his people out of bondage and slavery and into a land of promise. And the story actually starts further back when God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised him and his children to be their God. And God will be a God to Abraham and to his children. And then he seals these promises with this covenant seal of circumcision. And he promises Abraham that he will dwell in a good land and that God would meet with him in this good land and God would meet with his people in this good land. He promised Abraham blessings. And through Abraham's seed, his children, the whole world would be blessed. 
And that seed ultimately would be Christ himself and the children of Abraham with the plural seeds would be Christ's also. And through Christ and his people, the whole world would be blessed. But he informed Abraham that this special covenant people that would come from him would first be in bondage in Egypt for about 430 years. And then he would bring them out with a mighty hand. He'd bring them into the land of promise. And with all of this true narrative of real history, it was also story and symbol. We pick up this story some 430 years later when Moses was born and reared in Egypt. Moses then was raised in Pharaoh's house, and we know the the story. And then he flees into the wilderness of Midian, where God meets him at a burning bush and tells him to go back now. It's time for the first installment of what I promised Abraham. And so he approaches Moses at the burning bush and he, he, he tells Moses who he is. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, I am your God. The one that you did not forget in Pharaoh's house. And now it's time. And you, I have chosen to be my vessel. And you can just hear the stutter. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> now go, Moses. Well, I'm not speaking so good. Go, Moses. Well, but what? Go, Moses. And so Moses goes. We pick up a bit of drama in chapter 4 when we come to this episode where Moses is going and he tells his father in law and he takes his wife, Zipporah, and his sons and he begins to set off for what he is supposed to do and goes back to Egypt. And almost an abrupt parenthetical note, but something that we're supposed to pay attention to. It comes in verse 24, and it came along the way at the encampment. That the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah, realizing that her son was uncircumcised, took a sharp stone, circumcised his son through the foreskin at Moses and said, You're a husband of blood to me. There's a bit of drama going on. Main question I think we should determine is who was the Lord after? Who was the Lord trying to kill? We're not really identified with who the hymn is, but there's several hymns in the passage. There's the hymn of Moses, but there's the hymn of his sons there as well. And while it may first appear rather obvious that it was. Moses that God was after to kill, I would suggest that it was actually his son. It's a suggestion. But let's pick up the story. After all, Zipporah was rather upset with Moses. It was not Zipporah's people, but it was Zipporah's son. Someone's life was in jeopardy, and Moses had just been given the marching orders by God himself, something that he was not exactly excited about at the moment, but he did, and he was faithful, and he was obeying, and he was going. 
We do also know from Genesis 17, 14, that there was something that all of this foundation was resting upon, and that is this covenant that God had made with Abraham as God reveals himself as the God of Abraham to Moses. And he, in Genesis 17, 14, it speaks about this circumcision, this setting apart and the sign and the seal of the covenant that God established with Abraham. And it says, all in And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I would suggest that God was after Moses' son, not after Moses himself. That seems to fit the narrative of the story more easily, at least in my understanding of it. And by the way, this is a place where very good commentators will disagree. But this is how I see the story, and I think there's relevance here. When you look at the narrative of the story, especially in light of the fact that God had just met Moses, had sent him on his way, and immediately in the context of verse 22 that just precedes this little episode, and I believe why this little episode is here, it says in verse 22, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your son, Pharaoh, your firstborn son. And then we have the little incident about Zipporah. Moses is in Zipporah's son along with Moses. And who was the Lord seeking to kill. I think there was some imagery, a part of the story with the symbol of the covenant of circumcision that was relaying something very important in terms of how God was viewing this covenant, the importance of being set apart for God, and this which Moses failed to do was putting the boy's life in jeopardy, and Zipporah took care of the matter. The whole emphasis just in that preceding context on the son brings us into the the drama of this particular narrative. The salvation of God's people requires a sharp distinction between them and the fallen world in which he is making that distinction. Between holiness and that which is common. Between the clean and the unclean. And God's people are called holy and clean and distinct and particular and peculiar. And they are a holy people. And before the great narrative of the Exodus where we began to pick up later. And the Passover which was being instituted at the very time. God's people must be marked out and distinguished from this world. They're gods. They're different. They're holy. And they are coming into something quite transforming. Circumcision then, as baptism does now, it marks out God's children as God's people. 
And not only is a promise to that individual child to save that child, but the child becomes a part of the great drama of redemption in the narrative of God. The child becomes a part of the people that God blesses. The child from birth becomes a part of the symbol and the story. The warp and the wolf of God's covenant redemptive story focused in Christ. And this child becomes a part of God's promise restored creation and of the promised new heavens and new earth. And so it is today. We have baptized Elaine, and she becomes part of the great drama of redemption. Not only are promises given to her, of which she will have to trust and appropriate those promises personally by faith, but she becomes a part of a people for whom Christ has died, and a part of the drama, and it's only through the eyes of faith that even now we see how such a baby will be so profound as a witness and testimony of God's grace in generations to come. But according to God's promise, she will. And to bring her up, as well as all of our children up, in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord means that her life will be filled and liturgized with story and with symbol. Our story this morning picks up after Moses goes back to Egypt and nine plagues later, three cycles of three plagues, and now we come to the tenth. The one that was referred back to in Exodus 4 when he warns Pharaoh it would be by the firstborn son that would be the delivery of my people. Now, God created a great drama for his people down in Egypt. Life got a little worse before it got a whole lot better. Through the working out of those nine plagues, of which God made a distinction between them and and the land of Goshen and the, the Egyptians, none of those plagues came upon God's people, but they came upon the Egyptians. But the Egyptians it kind of recoiled in a, in a direct way, made, made life a lot more difficult for a short time for God's people because of what they were experiencing. I think there's some things for us to learn here. God creates a great drama for his people. He created a great drama for Egypt and for the Egyptians. There was a great drama for Moses and Aaron and for Miriam. And a great drama for Pharaoh. The likes of which the world will never forget. The world still talks about that which happened back there. Believers and unbelievers alike will reference the stories and the plagues of God back in Egypt. The world knows this. It was not a quiet movement of God. It was dramatic. And the people were a part of the drama. (laughs) I think about that as I think about my trip to Italy. Knowing the challenges and the uncertainties with many unknowns of how it's going to turn out, particularly over the next 48 hours with a uh, 
having to change entire airports in, in London and knowing that uh, the story has been changing by the moment in the last 24 hours that have brought me with all of the details that I've taken care of, great uncertainty. I am expecting drama. And I'm trying to re-script my life in order to see God's work in the middle of it rather than worry so much about it. Because drama is a way that helps us to remember. It calls us to trust God. It brings us to a place where we don't know, but we've got to trust Him. And when it's all over with, we can look back and give Him glory and say, God did that, and God did that, and God did that. And we remember those things, and we, we put them in the archives of our, our thoughts and our heart, and we draw upon them to trust God all the more fuller in the next drama of life. There's going to be challenges in this life, challenges in your life. It's part of the story. It's part of this fallen world that we live in. But God has not left us to be sorrowful in these things. He has given us a joy that transcends beyond the earthly sorrows. And one day there's a glory where all of these things and the the kind of drama that we now experience in this fallen world will be removed. There's always going to be challenges to endure. But with every challenge, there's promises to receive by faith, and to govern our lives through them. So we need to learn to see God in the drama. We need to learn not to, to, to spurn the dramas of life, but to understand and recognize that this is a part of the story, and we will remember it better, and we will be able to testify of what God has done for us, and the world may tell the stories thousands of years from now like they did here. It's going to be unpleasantries along the way, but they're intended to engrave more deeply a mark in our memory and upon our heart for the glory of Christ. And we yield to the drama in order to see God in the middle of it. So we pick up the narrative where the Passover is now inaugurated in Exodus 11. And let me just point out a few of the the points. Not all the points, but just a few. Because in Exodus 11, it informs us of the certainty of the release of God's people in the death of the firstborn. They have waited. They have endured the plagues. They keep expecting. And Pharaoh would almost let them go, but not. He would almost let them go and not. And then he would let them go and even bring them back. And, and now God says, you know, this was not all, you know, trial and error. This was not about failure. This was about me exposing myself to reign over all of the gods of Egypt. Every one of those plagues was orchestrated, defined to speak definitely to the futility and the failure of the gods in whom the Egyptians worshipped because by this time, that had been infiltrated into the hearts and lives in many ways of God's people in Goshen. And he's putting an end to that. So in Exodus 11, he relates this narrative around the circumcision of Moses' son, where he tells Pharaoh, if you fail to let my people go, 
I will release my people by your firstborn son and all in the land. And here we are on the eve of that great night, that great, tragic, dramatic night. In the midst of this announcement, verse 7 of chapter 11, God declares that through this that he's about to do, he will save his people, but not the Egyptians. And he makes a distinction between the two. If you notice there, that's what he says in verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And we as God's people must always remember there is a distinction between us and the world, between God's holy people and the fallenness of this world. And if you fail to make that distinction, you will be cut off from his people. That's a reoccurring phrase throughout the old covenant promises. If you abuse the Passover, if you neglect the circumcision, if you neglect and spurn the covenant, which shows indicatively of how your heart is postured toward God and faith, then you will be cut off from the people. Ultimately from God and ultimately eternally. He makes a distinction Circumcision was one act of the story and symbol that made the distinction. Passover is another act and symbol of the story that creates and establishes and maintains the distinction of which the circumcision reveals. Then we come into chapter 12. Chapter 12 now brings us into the symbol portion of the story narrative and the liturgy and the rite of Passover. And I want to draw out a few points from this passage in very broad strokes. In verses 1 through 3, we see that what God is doing at the inauguration of the very first Passover is He changes their calendar. He changes the calendar of God's people and the way that they lived their life in time and space And he changes it with the event of Passover itself. This is going to be a a new month. This is the beginning of your year now. This particular month, which is now your first month. I'm changing all that. Now you're going to have to go this way. And that was very significant because God is the God of creator of space and time. And we see the changing of this month and year reflected back of even... The beginning of creation when God establishes this seven-day week and he establishes time and space and puts stars and moon and, and, and all for seasons and for these kinds of things. And what we see here as he's taking this people out of an exodus is symbolic of the new heavens and the new earth that God will create. A new creation and the removal of the old fallenness that has plagued this planet. There will be a new beginning. And this Exodus story becomes the paradigm story 
for the rest of Israel's history. It becomes the paradigm story for our history. It's our story. We see this story as the first installment of that promise that God made to Abraham 430 years. And now here they are 430 years later. And when Christ, the Passover, accomplished his work of redemption on the cross, it was a new exodus with a new Passover and a new beginning. So it shouldn't surprise us that the entire calendar has once again been changed to adjust to that particular event, making this new exodus a new kind of Passover that has restructured and organized this world in such a way that it all revolves historically around the event of Jesus Christ. It was a reconstitution. That which the Noahic covenant was promising, a reconstitution of this earth, making its way for the Messiah to come and bring in the new heavens and the new earth and heaven to meet with earth here in God's space. A second point I'd like to bring out in verses 4 through 6 is they were instructed to choose a lamb for the size of the household. That's important. It's important to see that there was a household inclusion in this Passover. The children are a part of the story and a part of the symbol. They are included in the promises of God, in the covenant of God, in circumcision. They were included in the entire life of the story in which Israel went. And they were all baptized in the sea as they came out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. They all drank of the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. They all ate of the same bread from heaven, which was Christ. Christ is for the children, too. The actual size of the lamb which they had to choose was an analytical function of the size of their household. Let's see, how many children do you have? I've got eight. Bonds have a whole bunch of them, and... The Ryans have a whole bunch of them. Man, we're going to have to get a pretty fat calf. Well, actually, y'all could probably take a whole lamb for yourself. We'll include mom in on that. It was literally calculating the math and figuring out how much portion control there would be and the mathematical arrangement that God had in this story with this symbol included the children. Now, why am I making such a big deal about that? Because most people, or many people, I should say, especially Presbyterians, to whom I speak, and not you, you're the choir, but they have read more back into this particular passage than what it is actually saying than just about any other passage in Scripture. Many would say, no, no, it's only the 20-year-olds and older, of the, only the 20-year-olds and males who would eat of the Lord's Supper. That is a very common interpretation. 
And the reason that's a common interpretation are twofold. First, what's governing that interpretation is the driving reason which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on the Lord's Supper when they think that the text there in 1 Corinthians 11 prohibits the inclusion of the children in the Lord's Supper, and so therefore they're going to have to justify that particular exegesis with isogesis, reading into the Scripture what it does not say, back into the Passover. They're either going to have to do that, or they're going to have to recognize that Passover and Lord's Supper are not connected, and Luke chapter 22 makes that vitally clear that it is. So you only have two choices. But because they're going to stake their claim in 1 Corinthians 11 that the children should not partake of the Lord's Supper, they're going to look back and they're going to have to acknowledge this feast and they're going to have to say, well, it was only the 20-year-olds and older that were really welcome to the feast. Now, here's the problem. 1 Corinthians 11 does not prohibit circumcised or baptized children, if you will. From eating the Lord's Supper, the scriptures do not prohibit that any more than the scriptures will prohibit women from coming to the Lord's Supper. And you will not have a single reference in all of the scripture where the women are even indirectly spoken of in terms of coming to the table. And yet it's obviously clear that the ladies and the children are included in the meal. It was already established, not in 1 Corinthians 11, but way back at the original exodus of which now we are living in the light of the fulfillment of it in Christ. But while the 20-year-old sons were required to represent their households at this wonderful annual feast once a year, the whole family was certainly welcome which was oftentimes the case, and even encouraged to go if they could. That's why we find in those three feasts, there's children and wives, and there were these songs that they sang, and why Jesus got lost for three days, because he was there. And so we need to understand that the Passover included the entire household, but especially the children. May I say that? It was going to be the children's lives that would be saved in the very Passover. Yeah. You see, the story includes the children to such a degree, if you take the children out of the picture, the entire story falls down on the firstborn and the seed of Abraham and the covenant promises and all of that. Children were included in the supper. And the children this morning, if they're baptized, they're included in this supper. A third point given to us in verses 7 through 12 gives us the very specific instructions on how to keep the Passover. Meticulously given here, and even more so in other passages of Scripture. And I think we need to realize the importance of what God does here. We cannot make up worship liturgy just any old way we want to. If you leave any of it till morning and do not burn it with fire, you will be cut off from my people, meaning from God himself. Oh, well. 
If you boil any of it in water, you will be cut off from my people. If you do it this way or do it that way or you leave it out this way and you don't do it this way, you will be cut off from my... It it is not up to you to decide how you're going to worship God. It is up for you to understand how God is to be worshipped and conform yourself to it joyfully. God alone can instruct us how He is to be worshipped, the manner in which He is to be worshipped. And we have to conform to it, like it or not. And if we don't like it, the problem is with us. He uses the exact same kind of language for those who have broken His covenant in neglecting circumcision, as though they never even are identified with it altogether. They, that person has broken my covenant. He will be cut off. He uses that language here on this sacrament as well. And folks, there's a lot of invention and novelty and innovation in worship these days, and they had detrimental effects upon God's people and upon the children of God's people. To follow God's covenant precepts and to apprehend the promises of God through genuine faith. Faith includes two things. It includes the content of faith and it includes the act of faith. The knowledge of faith and the trust in faith. And it includes necessarily those two things. In each act of redemption, God reveals more of the content of our faith. But he demands along the way our acts of faith, trusting in his instruction. Will we follow his leading? Saving faith will always have both components. Even the demons believe and shudder knowledge. People are confused today about the content of faith. And so they do not act on the covenant in ways that are faithful. Baptizing their children is one of those ways that we not only understand the knowledge of the content of the faith, but it is a way in which we then receive that and act upon it in trust in what God has promised. But circumcision nor baptism today replaces or baptism today, which replaces circumcision, neither one of those are a mark of a physical genetic inheritance. But may I say it this way, but they are a mark of a spiritual genetic inheritance. You are the sons of Abraham by faith. In other words, we must be instructing our children in one, the content of our faith, the knowledge of Christ. And number two, we must be instructing our children in the acts of faith that accompanies that knowledge. It's not enough to teach them about God. We have to liturgize them into God. If I can put it that way, humanly speaking. Verses 13 through 28. By the way, that's, that's how God reveals to our children who they are through story and symbol. Okay? Verses 13 through 28 actualizes what God has instructed. 
There's a couple of points I want to bring out in this. In verse 13, that blood which they were to take from this Passover lamb that they would kill, specifically identify, and they would take the blood and they would put it upon the doorpost and the lintel. That blood, verse 13 says, is going to be a sign. But who is the audience of that sign? Who sees the sign? The sign would be a visible, tangible, physical interposition between God and His people. But who was the sign for? Well, on the surface, the main audience seems to be whom? It's okay. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood. On the surface, the sign is for God to see. It's for the people. It's for their benefit, but it is to God. It's a sign for God to see. Like the rainbow in heaven, it says, And when I put the rainbow in the heaven, I will look upon the sign of the covenant. And I will remember my covenant not to flood this earth again. So on the surface, the sign is for God to see. But that really ultimately pointed to the act of faith. The act of faith of God's people. There are people today who do not believe that the sacraments are necessary for salvation. And in and of themselves, that is true. But the act of faith demands for us to follow the content of faith. And true saving faith will act in according to God's instruction. So in a way, the sacraments are necessary for salvation. Not in and of themselves, but they reveal the saving faith and the content of what they are expressing. And that is present. And if done in a spiritually proper way, they call us to acts of faith and the very thing that they symbolize. They call us to trust in those promises. Another thing I'd like for you to know here, or at least see with me, is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, given further down in the chapter, is an inseparable feast from the, the Passover. They would eat unleavened bread for one week. They would put out all of the leaven, and they would... And by the way, when they're eating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is absolutely inseparable from the Passover, the children did not fast for a whole week watching their parents eat unleavened bread. See, it's part of life. It's part of the sustenance of how they lived their life was such a part of the story. It was inseparable from it. The bread in those days was leavened typically by 
the juice of grapes, which was then added to dough, and over the next couple of days in a warm environment would ferment. And that fermentation would then begin the leavening process of which then they could take a piece of that dough, put it into another lump, and the process of leavening would go over again. That whole process took seven days or several days to happen. And that was the point. The leaven provided a link to the past. And the absence of leaven symbolized a break from the past and a desire for a new beginning. Our Christian faith demands that we separate from the past life of the folly and the fallenness of sin. And we make a clean break with the world, make a clean break with Egypt. And one of the greatest sins that God's people kept longing for was the old leaven of the old world represented in Egypt. The last point in the passage is a teaching to inquisitive children. Verses 26 and 27. When the children rise up and they're a part of this story, they say, what, what, what do you mean, Dad? What's all this about, Dad? Then you are to instruct them of this meal and this Passover and what God has done for you and what God did for them and what God has promised to your children. They're a part of the story and the symbol, and when lived out, it becomes a part of their lives. They are not merely an attendant part. This Passover is not merely an appendix to their lives, like so many Christians live out today. The Lord's Supper is just an attendant part of the Christian life. And pretty soon, it's only once a month or maybe once a year. And it's on an evening service and it's marginalized and few people show up for it. It's not to be marginalized. It is to be quintessential and to write at the heart of the story in our children's lives. Our children are part of living out the story. And they need to be conscious of the story. They, they, they are going to be inquisitive of the story. And when they observe those symbolic rituals of which we partake of week in and week out, they have deep meaning behind them and they will be inquisitive of them. Because God made it that way. God designed it to be that way. Liturgy in life is how God designs life to be lived out in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if we follow God's lead here, he'll put those questions in the hearts of our children and we need to be ready to give them the answer. Oh, this is Christ. This is Jesus. He's delivering his people out of Egypt. He gives us a promised land. And you know what? There's something that's going to resonate with them in their spirit. Because these are God's things, and God puts them there. And he tells us not only to tell them the content of their faith, he tells us to be involved in the acts of that faith. It's not just a fairy tale kind of story. It's a living story where now they're a part of it a part of the past, carrying it forward into the future. And that is the hope of the, the promise of the fulfillment is the, the carrying on of the covenant through the future, into the future by our children and the promises that God has made to them. That's why we have hope, because God is faithful. Now, 
The Exodus was not merely about leading people out of something, but equally so, it was about leading them into something entirely. If you look at how much Exodus is broken down, you have a large portion of Exodus making this entire tabernacle with God. They were leaving behind an old world for something new. They were freed from bondage of slavery into liberty. They were going into a land that God had prepared for them by the hands of others. They were going there to dwell with God in their very midst. They would build a tabernacle after the pattern of a garden when God walked with his people. And they fellowshiped with God in the cool of the day. And that tabernacle would then be made a permanent building in time to come in their history that they would be known as the temple. And the temple would be the the very God space where God would meet with his people. And it would be the place where heaven and earth would come down and meet together and converge in this place, in this God space, this transcendent place. But yet with the promises of what it would hold forth in the complete new heavens and the new earth. These were the symbols that represented God here on earth and God among his people. They were symbols of a story that that put heaven and earth together, speaking of the consummation of these things in eternity when heaven comes down here to earth. Where the hope and the promise of the new heaven and new earth would eventually flourish over this entire planet, for the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea through the words of Habakkuk. And Isaiah reiterates the same. The promise that God would come into his temple kept the story alive. Even as they come out of Babylon, they're looking for God to come into his temple. The restoration and the rebuilding of that temple was necessary for Messiah, God himself, to come. And God did come. God came. He brought heaven to earth. And that Jacob's ladder that connected the two between heaven and earth has come together in the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's space, people. And now the temple, the people of God, where Christ is their head, comes together and we meet together and we do not have merely a foretaste of eternity to come. We are experiencing heaven today in the God space through Jesus Christ, where we are seated in the heavenlies and still have our feet upon this earth. Jesus. The Son of God shows up and the new Passover is here. And He is the completeness of the temple promise. Quite unexpected from the way the Jews would see it. But revealed in this marvelous mystery which has been hidden in the ages. Now has been manifest in Him is for us. Jesus is the God space. And all of the story and the symbols point to him as the climax of this earthly history where even our calendars are changed around the event. And this morning we're part of the story. A child has been baptized. We're about to eat of the feast. And our children are not only a part of it, they're the ones that are carrying it on to the next generation. And to bring them up in Christ requires them not only to teach them of the content of the faith, but to involve them in the liturgies of the acts of faith that then gets them into their lives and has them to ask the questions. Why are these here, Dad? 
What are they telling us about God? I want to know. May Christ bless us and our children and fill the earth with the knowledge of himself and of his glory, even as the waters do cover the sea. To you and to your children. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the covenant promises. We confess our ignorance that in this day and age we have failed to recognize so much of what you've done in the past. And we think that in Christ he came to to start everything new when in fact he came to fulfill all of the promises of old. In him we live and move and have our being. It's only in him that is the only mediator between God and man. With his feet on the earth and his head in heaven, we now as his body express the physical manifestation of him to this earth. We are distinct and holy and set apart and we live in the liturgies of worship that you have instructed us in that will testify to this world and particularly teach our children, not merely in their heads the content of faith, but in their hearts the God of their faith, to trust him. How thankful we are that this day these sacraments before us are not just dead symbols, but they are manifestations of our living Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.